here in the middle of Paul's letter to the Philippians, he has been exhorting them to live and grow in the Christian life. So we are in the middle of an extended section of Paul's letter, which began back in chapter 1, verse 27, and it ends with our last verse today in chapter 2, verse 18. If you look at this section, the first words of the instruction were found back in chapter 1, verse 27, when Paul said, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's how he began this exhortation, this command, this instruction. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then a few verses later in chapter 2, verse 5, Paul instructed the Philippians to have the mind or have the attitude of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 12, which we looked at last week, Paul put it this way, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. And now, Paul will explain more specifically what it looks like for you and for me and for the Philippians to work out our salvation. So he's been exhorting us, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. This means you need to have the mind of Christ, have the attitude of Christ, humility. This means you need to work, requires effort to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And now he moves on from that general exhortation to concrete instruction. He gets very specific. For some of you, he will get uncomfortably specific with how we should work out our salvation. So let me read again verses 14 through 18. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So I have three headings in my sermon outline this morning. They are the context, the call, and the cause. There is a concrete call for us in Paul's words. A a concrete set of instructions. There is a context. There's a location in and among which we work out that call. And then finally, there is also a cause or a purpose that Paul has behind the exhortation. So another way of thinking about this is this. In these verses, 
we have what is Paul telling us to do? That is the call. Where is Paul calling us to do this? That's the context. And why is Paul calling us to do this? And that would be the cause. So we will, Lord willing, get to all three. But before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, as we open up your word today, we ask that you would help us by your spirit to behold your word and to grasp your word, to believe your word, to embrace it and to do it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you will find that on page 637. Three headings, the context, the call, and the cause. So let's begin with the context. Where is this taking place? Where is Paul telling them and telling you and me to work this out. And he doesn't just say to them, Philippi, like he would say to us, Roseville. He describes the kind of place that it is where they're going to work out this call. And we find his description. Look with me in the second half of verse 15. You see the description. In the midst of of a crooked and twisted generation. So that's the context. A crooked and twisted generation. Jesus used this phrase to describe unbelieving Jews. And Moses used this term to describe what Israel had become at the end of his lengthy sermon in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5. And it is not a compliment. A crooked and twisted generation. These are not positive attributes. So the word for crooked, this word for crooked, it means wrong. It means unjust. It means immoral. And then the word twisted implies that things that are crooked weren't always crooked. They've they've been bent. They have been twisted. The word straight, right? The word straight means right. The word straight means true. And so a twisted generation takes what is straight and makes it crooked. So we too. We live in a a crooked and twisted generation. We're not different in this regard. Think about what our culture has done with good gifts. Think about the twisting and the bending that our society has done with good gifts from God. Gifts like human sexuality, and music, and government, and laughter, 
and marriage and children and food. The list goes on. These are good gifts from God. All of those things I just listed, they are for our good and our pleasure, our delight, our enjoyment, and they are for the glory of God. And what we have done with those things as a culture is we have bent them back on ourselves. So these things that are meant to be straight ways to God, enjoying His good gifts and in enjoying those gifts, enjoying Him, with a heart and spirit of gratitude, but we have pulled the trajectory away from God and we have bent and twisted these good things back on ourselves. We have perverted them. So that's what's happening in a crooked and twisted generation. It means that specifically. That is Philippi and that is America. We work out our salvation, you and me, in a crooked and twisted generation. We follow this call that Paul is going to give us in and among or in front of a crooked and twisted generation. So that's the context. That's where we're all going to work out this call. But let's move on and let's understand what the call is. There's two parts. There's a negative and a positive that you'll see in these verses. There's a a don't do this, and there is a do this. The negative is in verse 14, and it is no grumbling or disputing. That's negative. It's don't do this. No grumbling and no disputing. That water bottle is so loud. Blaze, I want you to put it down. Thank you. (laughs) It probably wasn't distracting you, but I'm so easily distracted. So I'm just, he's just taking a drink, but I'm just hearing this plastic. It's driving me nuts. Thank you, son. The positive is in verse 15. Shine as lights. So you hear that the negative, don't do this. No grumbling, no disputing. But then the positive, do this. Shine as light. So let's look at them both, but let's begin with the the negative. Verse 14. Verse 14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things. In other words, obey. Do all things, all good things. Obey. Obey without grumbling. Obey without disputing. This means never grumble. Totally exhaustive statement. Never, ever grumble. Or some of your translations may say complain or murmur. And then he says never dispute, or some of your translations may say, question. In other words, the Christian life has a zero tolerance policy for grumbling and disputing. It's never 
allowed in the Christian life. So, we better understand exactly what they are. If we're never to do this, we better understand exactly what they are. Grumbling is more external and disputing is more internal. Let me explain. Grumbling is more external. Happens out here. And the disputing is more internal. Happens in here, in my heart, in my mind. Grumbling. We'll start with grumbling. You know what grumbling is. You know what murmuring is. Just saying the words sound like what they are. You ever notice that? Grumble, 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 grumble. Murmur, 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 murmur. When you complain, that's what it sounds like to other people. Grumble, 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 grumble. Murmur, 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 murmur. It's annoying, isn't it? Never, ever grumble. It is complaining. It is whining. It is self-pitying. It is wrong always. And the Bible points this out many times, of course, because the Bible knows, God knows that we struggle with this. I struggle with it and you struggle with it. But Paul makes it very clear. We are never to grumble. Grumbling is declarations of disappointment. Declarations of disappointment. That's it. It's not a part of something bigger like a plan or a prayer. Grumbling just stands alone as an expression of unhappiness over people and circumstances. There's nothing good attached to it. You've been around others when they're like this, and I'm sure others have been around you and me when we are like this. And to say it lightly, it is a very unpleasant experience. This isn't pleasant to be around. And it is very, very contagious. It's very contagious. Think of it this way. Grumbling, complaining, or murmuring. It is communicating to God and others your ingratitude. At the end of the day, this is what complaining is. It is communicating to God and to others your ingratitude. And here's what Paul is saying. Never do that. Never do that. And what else is Paul saying? Never to do. It's something more internal. And the word I have in the ESV here is disputing. So this is not referring to an external behavior like complaining as much as it is referring to a a sort of internal dialogue that sinfully questions God. That's actually what this word disputing means. It's this internal dialogue that is sinfully questioning God. There are sincere questions and there are insincere questions. There are questions that we ask God and others that are sincere and we really want an answer. And there are other questions that we ask that are not sincere. They're statements that we're making with a question mark at the end. 
And that kind of internal dialogue that sinfully questions God, it is wrong. So let me give you a couple examples. One easy and and one hard. To swallow, I mean. When you are on a, a long drive with a car full of children and you hear one of them ask for the 17th time, are we there yet? That is not a sincere question. They know, and you're tempted to answer sarcastically, but they know that you are not there yet. You're driving 70 miles an hour down a freeway. They are saying, I am unhappy in the car. That's what that means. Are we there yet? It's not a sincere question. It's a statement. I am not happy that we are not where we are going yet. So that's the easy one to swallow and probably relate to that. Here's another one that you might relate to that is more difficult to swallow. When a Christian says in his heart, God, why are you doing this to me? That is typically not a sincere question. When a Christian says in his or her heart, are you ever going to help me? That is typically not a sincere question. It's a statement. It is a complaint. I am unhappy with your providence, God. It is what Paul refers to as disputing in your heart. So Jesus used the word to describe evil thoughts. That's how Jesus used it. This word disputing as evil thoughts. Remember, something bad out there always starts in here. The Bible teaches us this principle. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. For Mark 7, for from within, out of men's hearts come and then... All these sins are listed by Jesus. So anything bad out here that I'm doing, that I'm saying, it starts in here. And so we have to take our thoughts captive. Paul says elsewhere, you have to, Paul says in Philippians, set your heart and mind like hooks into thoughts that are pure and lovely and true. And you have to do that instead of disputing. Which is this internal dialogue where we sinfully question God. So Paul is saying, no complaining and no sinfully questioning God ever. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. There is nothing more off-putting in a Christian. Nothing. Go down as deep as you can go, and the spirit and attitude of the Christian should be, if nothing else, gratitude. Gratitude. The Christian life, think of it this way, is an overflow of gratitude. Everything I say, everything I do, 
should begin with gratitude. Gratitude because of who God is and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That prompts gratitude in the Christian's heart. If I am complaining, I am not grateful. I cannot complain and be grateful at the same time. If I am complaining, I am not trusting in the greatness and goodness of God. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way. He said, A grumbling or questioning spirit is an expression of ingratitude to God's providence and of lovelessness and pride towards others. It is a denial of grace. It is working against salvation rather than working salvation out. This is why it's such a big deal. Because we're so prone to it and because we maybe wink at it or laugh at it and entertain it in others and are so often given to it, we don't think as seriously as we should about complaining and grumbling and disputing. But it makes us dig deeper when we hear Paul say something, don't do that ever. He doesn't say that a bunch. Don't ever do this. Don't ever complain. Don't ever murmur. Don't ever grumble. Don't ever sinfully question God. Don't ever dispute God in your heart. Why? It is an expression of ingratitude. And if the Christian is anything... He or she should be grateful. And now look at verse 15. What happens when we live without grumbling in this world? That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Friends, when we don't complain, when we don't question God, we set ourselves apart from others. We set ourselves apart. We show ourselves, Paul is saying in verse 15, we show ourselves to be children of God. I decided not to take the time to get into this because it would would probably add 15 minutes to this sermon. But I'll just say this, that if you were a first century Jew hearing this letter written by Paul and you listened to this section, you would immediately think of wandering Israel after they were delivered from Pharaoh in Egypt. The same phrases are used. Quicked and crooked. Quicked, I want to say that. Crooked and twisted generation. That's exactly what Moses called that wandering Israel. And he called them that because of their grumbling and their disputing. Their murmuring, their complaining. And so the first century Jew that was hearing these words from Paul, they would have heard Paul saying, don't do what Israel did. And do what Israel didn't do. And we'll see, that is to show yourself. As a child of God, to shine as lights in this world. And he's challenging us today with the same thing. D.A. Carson said, Christian contentment 
stands out in a selfish, whining, self-pitying world. And for the most part, that is the world we live in. We live in a complaining, selfish, whining, self-pitying world. It's everywhere. And Christian contentment stands out in that world. So that's the negative call. Do not grumble or dispute. And now here is the positive half of Paul's call. Look at the second half of verse 15 with me. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So here's the positive call. Shine as lights in the world. You've been a Christian for a while and read most of your Bible. This sounds familiar. This is a familiar theme. The church, Jesus said in Matthew 5, is a light of the world, a city set on a hill. This word for light used here is the same word used in Revelation 21 to describe the radiance of the new Jerusalem in the new heavens and the new earth. Daniel 12.3 says, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. It's a beautiful illustration. And this is who a Christian is in a dark world when they commit to not grumbling not disputing, working out their salvation, living their life in a manner worthy of the gospel, having the humble mind of Christ, they shine as lights in the world. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. It's familiar to many of you. What does Paul say next? How specifically, concretely, do we do this? How do we shine as lights among a crooked and twisted generation? Paul tells us exactly how. By what? Holding fast the word of life. He gets very practical. Very specific, very concrete, and I'm glad. Because when people say things to me like, shine your light, I don't know what that means. Some of you can connect the dots there, and you know exactly what that looks like, but I don't think that way. So he says, the very next thing he says, shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. So we're going to hammer this for a while, because this is... This is at the heart of this call that we're looking at right now. Well, the word of life is the Bible. That's what Paul means. The word of life is God's word. 
And the phrase, look with me, holding fast to. That's actually one Greek word that in English we're trying to translate. But it's one Greek word. And it means either to hold your position or to hold your focus. Paul probably means both here. To hold your position like it would be used to describe a soldier that is holding his position on the battlefield despite opposition and the temptation to run and hide. Explosions, bullets, men charging. Hold your position. That's the Greek word that he's using here. Or it can be used as holding your focus, holding your attention, holding your gaze. Let me show you some other places in the New Testament that same word is used. So we get the idea of what we're supposed to do with God's word. In 1 Timothy 4.16, it's translated, Keep a close watch, that's the word, on yourself and on the teaching. Keep a close watch. In Acts 3, 5, it is translated, He fixed His attention. That's that Greek word. He fixed His attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. And in Acts 19, 22, it is translated, Paul himself stayed, that's the Greek word, in Asia for a while. So you get the idea. It means holding a position. It means holding a focus. If you and I are going to be a light in this world, you and I, we must not complain, and we must hold fast the word of God. This means more than looking at your Bible. This means more than opening your Bible on Sundays. This means more than reading your Bible. This means more than believing your Bible. This means doing your Bible. Not merely listening to the Word of God, James says, but doing what it says. Holding your focus, holding your position on the Word of God. We sing this song since the time we were little kids in Sunday school. Some of you were already you're singing it in your head over and over again. This little light of mine. Don't panic, I'm not going to sing. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And you're going to keep letting it shine, and you're not going to let anyone mess with it, and you're not going to let Satan blow it out. And we, we sing this cute song. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. How do we, according to Paul's words here in Philippians 4, how do we let it shine? The answer is by holding fast the Word of God. By holding fast the Word of God. Believe it. Trust it. Delight in it. Obey it. Preach it. 
holding fast the word of God. If you are going to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, you must hold fast the word of God. If you are going to work out your salvation, you must hold fast the word of God. This is not optional. Psalm 1 and Jeremiah 17 and Deuteronomy 8 make it very clear, Christian, that if you do not hold fast the word of God, you are committing spiritual suicide. If I could say it forcefully like that. If you are neglecting the word of God in your life, If you are not holding fast the word of life, the word of God, then you are committing spiritual suicide. You are cutting yourself off from the source of spiritual life. And I can tell you this with 100% certainty. If, Christian, you are not holding fast the word of life, It is only a matter of time before your life falls apart. I promise you. It is just just a clock that is ticking. This is the force with which Paul is writing. Hold fast the word of life. Psalm 1, you know what it says. The one who delights in the word of God, he is like what? A tree that is planted by streams of water. And those leaves don't wither. And it's always producing fruit. And where's the tree? Planted by the water. And what's the water? It is the truth, the word of God. He is delighting in God's word. And if you are holding fast the word of life, you are like that oak tree that stands firm. And if you're not holding fast the word of life, it doesn't take much for that tree to break. Jeremiah 17 says the same kind of thing. Blessed is the man whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree that sends out its roots to the water. And when the heat comes, he's fine. Leaves don't weather, producing fruit. But if you don't hold fast to the word of life, Jeremiah 17 says, you're putting your trust in man. When the heat comes, it says, you're like a shrub. You're like a tumbleweed. And the slightest breeze pushes you wherever it wants to push you. You know what the heat is in your life. The heat is temptation. The heat is a difficult circumstance. The heat is a a disobedient child. The heat is a, a broken relationship. The heat is the loss of a job. You all experience heat all the time. And Jeremiah 17 says, when that heat comes, you're either going to be a tree or a shrub. And it depends on whether or not you're sending out your roots to the word of God. Deuteronomy 8 
Do we believe that? Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we shine as lights in the world by holding fast the word of life. So that is the context in a crooked and twisted generation. That is the call to do all things negatively here with no grumbling, with no disputing, and then positively shine as lights in the world holding fast the word of life, holding your position on the word of God, holding your focus on the word of God. And now finally, what is the cause? What is the cause in in front of all this that Paul is calling the Philippians, is calling you and me to? Why, in other words, is Paul calling them? This way. What is the purpose? Well, we're going to find it after the so that in verse 16. That phrase, so that, tells us that a cause is coming up, a purpose is coming up. And what Paul says, I think it is shocking the cause. I had to spend a lot of time working this out. I can think of a dozen other things I would expect Paul to say. Knowing Paul's writing pretty well. I could think of a dozen other things that I would expect him to say. Let me give you a couple examples. Things like, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Shine as lights of the world so that men and women will come to praise your Father in heaven. I would expect Paul to say that and give that as a cause. Or maybe this. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Shine as lights in the world so that your heavenly Father will be pleased. I could could hear and I do expect Paul to say something like that. But that is not, look with me, that is not the cause Paul puts before them. And because this is a little different. I want to encourage all of you to really focus with me. This is very different, what Paul says. So focus and listen with me. Let me read it all together, and we'll get that cause at the end of verse 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Here it comes. So that. What's the cause, Paul? What's the purpose? So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And I was surprised by that. I was shocked by that. Paul is saying, Work out your salvation in this way so that when Jesus returns, I may be proud of my work and know that it was not wasted. I was surprised by that. Didn't sound right to me at first. But that's clearly what Paul is saying. Do it for me. I don't know how to read that any other way. Paul is saying, do it for me. Do it for my joy. 
Now that, of course, we know from what Paul has already said is not the ultimate cause. It's not the ultimate purpose. But nevertheless, it is a cause that Paul puts before them and puts before us now. So I was thinking about that. This would motivate you if you really loved the person who was saying it and you knew that they really loved you. That would motivate me. That would motivate you. If someone says, do it so that I can be proud of my work and know that my my ministry on you is not wasted, do it for me, do it for my joy. If the person's saying that, if, if you know how much they love you and if you love them, that would be motivating. As Christians... We're motivated by love and loyalty to God and love and loyalty to others. In your family, and your church, that's true. We are motivated not only by our love and loyalty to God and should be primarily, but we're also motivated by our love and loyalty to others, especially, I think, Those who have made an investment in us. You experience this on a simple level by wanting to make those proud who have made an investment in your life. Many of you have experienced that desire. I mean, for myself, when I think about the the rest of my life, As I, by the grace of God, as I, Eric Myers, by the grace of God, stay loyal to God and to my wife and to my children and to all of you. As I do that, I can I can think if I think about that future that by God's grace will be before me. I can think of several men who have made a significant investment in me. They just started coming to my head. Maybe like for the Philippians, Paul would have come to their mind. So if I, by the grace of God, stay loyal to God, my wife and children, I think that on that final day, those men will know that their work was not wasted and they will be proud and thankful for the work they, by the grace of God, put in. I can, I can imagine that after reading this verse. Paul goes on to say in our final two verses, 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I don't think a drink offering is something that we're familiar with. 
something in the Old Testament of your Bible, the Jews that were originally reading this, they, they would have known what a drink offering is. A drink offering was something that looked like a waste, but it wasn't. So think about what Paul has just said. A drink offering was something that looked like a waste, but it wasn't. Let me explain. In the Old Testament, the people of God, you've heard this, would offer up burnt offerings or burnt sacrifices to honor God. They would give something up. They would give an animal up. Something that they could have used, something that they could have needed, something that they could have benefited from. And they would give this up as an act of worship before God. When they would make that sacrifice, they would kill the animal. They would sprinkle the blood of the animal on the altar in the temple. And then they would burn up the rest of the animal outside of the temple. Now, at special times, there was also a drink offering. Paul uses that to illustrate his own life in these verses. So think about Paul and his life as you hear what the drink offering was. What the priest would do is he would come and he would, after the sacrifice was, as in many other times, totally complete. This is a sort of over-the-top. He'd take a very valuable, expensive bottle of wine. And then next to the altar... He would pour out every last drop. It would look to some people like a what? Like a waste. People treated Jesus this way. And some saw it as a waste. It was a drink offering. It would not be wasted. It would be an act of worship before God. So that's the imagery that Paul is bringing to their mind. And hopefully we understand. And so it's in our mind. We don't do that anymore. We do not offer sacrifices. Now, what in the New Testament talks about sacrifice in, in two ways. The sacrifice of Jesus and the sacrifice of your life. Romans 12, 1 and 2, which means that your, we don't offer sacrifices. We offer our life as a living sacrifice. It means that everything I am and everything that I do, I am, it is yours, God. I belong to you. I exist for you. Everything is about you. You are the center. So that's, when we think of sacrifice, we think of us sacrificing our life. That is what we offer up to God. So do you hear what Paul is saying? Let's look at these verses again. Even if, Paul says, I am to be poured out as a drink offering. That would be his execution. Which he knows is a very real possibility and will happen in his near future. Poured out completely, nothing left. Even if I, but this is the imagery he gets in their head, if that execution, which they don't want to have happen, they love him. But he says, here's what it's like. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. That's their Christian life. That's the sacrifice that was on the altar and the drink offering was poured out next to it. So here they are living their life for Christ. 
Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Do you hear what Paul is saying as he faces possible execution? He is saying, I am happy to have my life poured out for you. It brings me joy to think that I could be like that drink offering. And here you are living your life to honor God as a living sacrifice. And if my life is just to come alongside and to encourage you and to help you, and I'm then just poured out every last drop and even killed, I'm happy. What love. Paul has for these people. I'm happy to have my whole life poured out for you. In conclusion, I'd like you to consider a couple things in light of this cause that Paul puts before them, and of course he puts it before us. Before I ask those two questions to consider. Let me read two quotes. These are both from Ligon Duncan. I think this gets us ready to consider what we're going to consider. He says first this, in order for us to grow in grace, God throws gifted and godly ministers and pastors and elders and Christians into the service of our growing in grace. And they live and they bleed and they ache, and they die, all so that we'll do what? Grow in grace. So think about that. And then he says this. And this, this had me this week. Do you realize the cumulative investment that God has now made in your sanctification? He sent Augustine into the world, and Athanasius into the world, and Martin Luther into the world, and John Calvin, and John Owen, and Jonathan Edwards, and John Murray, and every other saint whose name you can think of, all for what? For your sanctification. Wow. What an investment God has made in the growth of His people. Think of the shoulders, 21st century Christians, that we are standing on. Think of where we are that we could not and would not be if by God's grace He didn't send men and women to love and teach His people the Word of God. What an investment He has made. And this is how Paul is talking, right? I have made an investment. And I hope that in the long run, at the end of all this, on the day of Christ, that I will see that my investment was not in vain. And I will be proud, proud of the work I did by God's grace. And He's motivating them. Do you love me? Make my joy happen on that final day. So here's what 
I'd like us all to consider. Number one, beside whose life are you a drink offering? You've got to have the imagery or that question doesn't make sense. So remember the imagery of a person living their life for Christ. That is the sacrifice and the drink offering poured out, spent, expended to complete this offering to Christ. So beside whose life are you a drink offering? Or I could ask it this way. Who are you being poured out for? Who are you being poured out for? Who are you not grumbling or disputing for? Who are you shining as a light before, in front of? Who are you holding fast to the word of life for? Who are you pouring yourself out for? Who are you happy to be spent for? And as you pour yourself out for those you love, as Paul did, I would encourage you, look to the day of Christ. Do you think long term like that? Or do you think more Short term. We typically measure success by what happens in the next five minutes. And if you do that, you're going to get discouraged over and over because those lives that you are pouring into are not yet what they will be. So are you looking to the day of Christ? That is when your work and your teaching and your pastoring and your coaching and your ministry and your parenting will come to fruition. And that's what Paul's looking forward to. Not next year, not, hey, when I visit you next Christmas, not, here's a five-year plan. On that day of Christ, I hope that on that day, I can look back and know that my mission did not fail. And I will be proud of you and proud of the work, by God's grace, I put in. So friends, beside whose life are you a drink offering? And second, and lastly, who has been a drink offering beside your life? Maybe it's already been poured out. Maybe it's still being poured out. All of you kids and young people and teenagers, many of you are so blessed because do you realize that your parents want to be a drink offering besides you? They want to be spent for you. They want to be poured out for you. They don't want to hold back one drop for themselves. They want to give it all and give it all up for you and your growth in Christ. Who has been a drink offering beside your life? What people has God 
given you, what parents, teachers, pastors, coaches, mentors, know that as you work out your salvation, as you grow in grace, as you fight the grumbling and the disputing, and as you shine like a light, know that you will bring joy to their hearts. You will bring joy to their hearts. It will bring such joy to Paul's heart that on the last day, he will see with great joy that his work was not in vain. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for all that you have done for our good. God, we of course are ultimately thankful for the cross and the sacrifice of your son. We would not have begun, we would not have a starting point spiritually if it wasn't for him. But God, we are also so thankful for how you, by your Son, by your Spirit, have brought others into our lives who have sacrificed themselves. Some people we know, some people we don't know, but they have laid such a foundation for us. And they have invested so many words and so many prayers and so many tears And you have used it all for our good. Not a bit of it was in vain. God, for those who are here who are pouring themselves out and discouraged, I pray that they would be encouraged to know that you are a good God who does all things well and bring to completion those things that you started. That on that last day, we will have only reason to rejoice. And for those, God, who have been much invested in, I pray that you would fill their hearts with thankfulness and fill their hearts with gratitude for people and most of all for you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.